Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 15th, a Friday. It's afternoon Pacific time, 2 p.m. Some of you will be getting ready for the weekend. So to prepare yourself from the weekend for a fun weekend, here's something to think about. Um, imagine it's 4 a.m. and you hear something ramming down your front door. No, that's not it. It's not the door. Your mind spins quick stories to explain the noise that has broken your sleep. Has your dog somehow gotten into the bathroom and jumped into the shower, knocking over shampoo bottles and causing an unholy ruckus? You sit up, blinking in the dark and say, the door, the dog. You can't make sense of the loud banging. The washing machine thumping off balance with too many wet towels. No, it's not a machine sound. You start to realize as the rest of your senses catch up. It's a live sound, a personal sound. Your spouse, also newly awakened, confused, gets up and stumbles slowly, curiously from the bedroom to the hall. Then his step abruptly changes. This is uh, uh, a piece from a new book uh, on a son's seizure and a mother changed forever by my guest today, uh, Mary Laura Philpot, whose new collection of essays, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time and Other Explosives, is just out this week, and Mary is joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Nashville, Tennessee. Mary, uh, Laura, do you think I ruined everyone's weekend already? <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Uh, thank you for sharing that little bit. That Those two paragraphs you just read, I think I spent more time on those than anything else in the book. And does that make them better or worse? I think it makes them responsible. I felt a huge responsibility in writing that chapter. That's a, that, as you could probably guess, people who are listening to that, that's the chapter about um, finding my son on the floor the first time he had an epileptic seizure. It was kind of the before and after moment that starts off this book and also changed my life. Um, the original title on that Washington Post excerpt when they first ran it was The Night Time Stopped. And I thought that was a lovely a lovely headline. Amy Joyce, the editor, came up with that. In the book, that chapter is called Hurry, Hurry, because it's all about my making the 911 call. And um, my, my son has no memory of that morning. So I felt a big responsibility to get it right. Yeah. And as a parent, and there'll be many parents listening, uh, it's, I wouldn't say the worst thing that a parent can read, but it's certainly very chilling. How does your son feel about you writing about this, given that he has no memory of it? He, you know, I can't speak for him, but he and I have discussed this because he knows this is something I'm going to be asked. Um, this book is so squarely anchored in my own perspective. Every, every sensory detail you get in this book is something I experience. It's what I'm seeing, what I hear, what I feel. Um, and he knows that. And he is a, he's a very, kind, lovely person. And he's also interested in epilepsy awareness. He wants people to know what to do if they come across someone having a seizure. So all those things sort of combine to make him a, a very gracious subject of that chapter. He's not the subject of the whole book. It's about a lot of things. It's about being human. It's about being 
a, a, a mortal being who loves other mortal beings and the impossibility that's all wrapped up in that. But he knows he is a part of it and he's been very gracious about that. Mary Laura, uh, many of uh, our viewers and, and listeners will be familiar with your your first huge best-selling book, I Miss You When I Blink. This new book, Bomb Shelter, is very much in that spirit. You, you, you say you write very personally. There's something uniquely personal about your writing. What is that? How is it? Do you consciously want to write from your soul somehow or from your heart? Oh, that's such a good question. I I think one of the reasons I write is to make sense of what's in my head. What's going on in my mind and in my soul generally is a lot of static noise. It's like when you turn on your TV and the cable is out and you're just getting that static. If I can put order to it by really digging into it and going, okay, what is bothering me? What is it that I'm feeling? If I can name it and articulate it, I get a sense of peace. And I've been told by other people who read what I write that when they read it, they also get a sense of peace. So that drives me to dig down into the really personal feelings, the hard feelings, and and try to make sense of them because then I feel better and I think it makes other people feel better. You know, I was half joking at the beginning when I talked about cheering up your weekend, but there is something very cheering about your writing, not cheerful, but cheering. One of um, one of the uh, the blurbs at the back said that you 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 enable people to laugh and cry simultaneously, and there's some truth to that. It's a very difficult thing to pull off. Are you again consciously doing that, or is that somehow just a reflection of who you are? It is. It is absolutely a reflection of my worldview. I do tend to go through life. I am someone who laughs and cries within the same five minutes. Um, I am always looking out for things that make me happy and little little sparkling bits of joy in the world. I'm somebody who, if you're walking down the sidewalk with me, I will stop and point out every dog we pass because dogs make me happy. So I'm someone you know who's like dog, dog, cat. Uh, at the same time, I am somebody who, you know, if you and I were sitting down having coffee, I might just start crying because something you say just strikes me as really deep and really sad. So I tend to feel all ends of the emotional spectrum at the same time. So some of that is is effortless because it does reflect my worldview. But some of it is on purpose. I like to read uh, or watch movies. And if, anytime I'm consuming some some piece of culture, I like to have my whole emotional circuit board lit up. Um, that feels good to me. I love to watch a TV show that makes me laugh and also makes me cry and brings me back to laughing again by the end. So I am trying to really keep that that balance going in my work as well. Do you think it all has to do, or something has to do with the fact that you you live in Nashville, Tennessee, where it can be, where the sun can be shining one minute, the next minute it can have a huge uh, thunderstorm. You warned me before we started that the rain is about to fall. I've lived in the yeah. South for a little while. And the weather seems to be so unpredictable, so ever-changing that it, it must have an effect on your mood. You know, that's a great observation. It, it, it does look like it's about to pour any minute here. Um, I think maybe li living in the South, it's a very, it's a very cultural place. We have deep musical history. We have deep literary history. People, you know, People all over the South, but especially in Tennessee and especially in Nashville, are creating all the time. So maybe even more than the weather, it's just the culture that I'm steeped in. Mary Laura, I've done my this show tends to be more on nonfiction and politics, history, America in particular. Lots of very critical books on America, particularly the divisions in America. And there's something very cheering 
bright about your work, your writing and your world. Do you think you offer, if not a solution, a way forward to many of the deepest problems in America? I'm not saying you write consciously from that perspective, but there's something implicitly optimistic and forward thinking, perhaps American in the most traditional sense about your work. That's kind of you to say. I I don't know that I have any solutions to offer for all of the problems in America. Um, but I would say that one of the reasons I write is because I feel those problems so heavily all the time. And one of the things I'm trying to work out as a human being is how do I get up and keep going every day when I am conscious of all the big important problems that are going on the, in the world, when I am conscious of you know, war and our horrific political system and climate change and everything else, knowing that I, as one single individual, cannot solve all those things. And I tend to be a fixer. I like to solve things. So something I'm writing toward in Bomb Shelter and in all my work is how do I balance awareness of those things and a desire to somehow get involved enough to help make a difference with finding meaning in my everyday. My everyday caretaking activities of the the people and the place and the animals around me may not solve everything. They may not solve the biggest problems, but they do make life a little gentler for the people around me. You have a very clear sense of self. Clearly, this is the first time we've met clearly as a person, but also in your writing. And yet you also write very consciously as a mother, as a wife, as a daughter, is this something, again, that comes naturally to you as a person, as a writer? Do you do you make an effort not to write purely about yourself, separate, atomized from everything and everyone else? That's a, That, again, is a wonderful question. One of the things I was thinking about a lot in Bomb Shelter was um, how things and people relate to one another. Obviously, one of the big driving perspectives in this book is motherhood, parenthood, and and that feeling of great responsibility for this, you know, this being I brought to life. I brought him into the world, and now I I can't save him. I can't fix everything in his path. Um, But I also thought back to uh, when I was a child, things that my burdens that my parents carried that I didn't realize until I became an adult. Um, So thinking about being a daughter, being an adult daughter who was once a little kid daughter, um, being a sister, being a friend, helped me sort out my feelings as a mother. Because I, the thing about parenthood is I, I resisted writing about parenthood for a long time. I think when you are a, a woman and you write about motherhood, it is very easily for your work to get dismissed and for people to go, oh, it's a little mommy blogger. We don't need to pay attention to what she's doing. So I resisted for a long time. But I've really embraced writing about parenthood because I think within the, the parent-child bond is every kind of human emotion and conflict you could ever write about. It represents so much. So, you know, for readers, whether you're a parent or not a parent, what you will find, I hope, in this book is writing about love and how hard it is to know that no matter how hard you love somebody, you can't save them forever. So I've leaned more into writing about parenthood lately. Yeah. And you you wrote a wonderful piece in the Post um, last year, Mm-hmm. about parenting, and this is integrated also into your book, about letting go as a parent. How has 
COVID, do you think, changed us generally as parents and particularly you as a parent? Oh, gosh. I was just talking with a friend about this earlier. I think it's changed all of us in ways that we are not going to fully understand for a while. I think it's going to take some 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 time and some retrospect to look back and see just how much we changed. For me, one of the things that changed the most was that th the pandemic hit just as my teenagers were getting to the age where they were about to leave the nest. So my oldest, my son, was reaching the end of high school, and I, I had for a long time kind of panicked about that. I was sad about it because I actually like, I like being around my children. I don't want them to go. Um, but when the pandemic hit and we were all suddenly put into the same house 24 hours a day, week after week, month after month, and I saw all the regular milestones kind of fall away and I saw how sad they were to miss graduations and proms and normal social interactions. And it made me think, okay, I was sad about the idea of, of their leaving home, but that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go out there. I'm, it's time. I'm ready for them to go. And, and I was, it made me so much more thankful when the pandemic limitations began to lift and they could go out in the, into the world and, and live the way they're meant to. Your work shows a great deal of sensitivity towards non-human creatures too. There's a moving piece on tortoises and you seem to be particularly intrigued with tortoises do you do you think that being so aware of your connections with others other humans whether it's as a daughter or a wife or as a mother is that essential in in terms of also appreciating other creatures I, you know, I am someone who has said only half joking before, I like animals better than people. <laughs> I I don't like animals better than all people. I like some animals better than some people. Um, but I, I think if you have a love of animals, it's a great way to practice empathy toward human beings. Uh, one of the things I sort of struggle with in Bomb Shelter and I write through in a variety of, of different essay chapters is how to have empathy for people who make me mad or for people who do things that I wouldn't do myself. And, uh, you know, to love animals and to love especially wild animals, animals who are not your pets, who you have no control over and they're just out there in the world, to feel a sense of responsibility for animals um, is a great a great practice in, in empathy because they're just they're creatures out there doing their thing. And we, and we can't necessarily rationalize their motivations. We just have to love them and take care of them for, for what they are. And if I can take that same approach to people in my life, I think I can be a better, a better person and a better friend and neighbor. Was there something inevitable about that tortoise getting on the cover of the book, Bomb Shelter? Oh, absolutely. I fought hard for that. I fought hard. That's, that's Frank. we that's what we call him. I don't know what his turtle family yeah. calls him. He's a, and you he's write a, about him in the book. Yes, he's a, a wild eastern box turtle who lives in my backyard, not not in a captive way. That's just where he lives. He was there long before we were. And um, he does have a few cameos in the book. But I also, just as a physical object, um, I wanted him on the cover because I think there's something very compelling about the look on his face, the way he's looking up kind of expectantly like, oh no, what's coming next, which is a big feeling in bomb shelter. And he has what we don't. He has a built-in protective mechanism. He has a shell. That's what human beings don't have. We're just these little soft, breakable creatures. And so we're always trying to invent protective mechanisms for ourselves and for each other. So I felt like just visually he symbolized 
this book pretty well. We have attempted to turn this into fiction because I wouldn't say there's a fictional element, but of course you write with the grace and um, seductiveness of a fiction writer. It doesn't mean that all, not all nonfiction writers write badly, but certainly you you exist, I think, in a, in a literary way in that gray area between fiction and nonfiction. Thank you. I, that is something I, I was consciously trying to do. I wanted to tell a story using all the tools and and tricks of the trade that any writer would use. Um, one of the things I did while I was writing Bomb Shelter, and I, I would say about two thirds of this book was written during the pandemic throughout 2020 and the first half of 2021. So I was in my house, you know, not going places like I normally would be. And I had these really long, un uninterrupted work days, which was new for me. Um, and I would write until about one o'clock in the afternoon. And then at that point, my brain was just, you know, worthless. And what I would do with my afternoon, since I was still here, is I would read with a pencil in my hand. And I've, I've always been a big reader. That's not new or different. But I was reading specifically to absorb storytelling tips from other writers. So I was reading uh, suspense, romance, short stories, every genre, every type of writing, and really studying what do other writers I admire do in their work? And how could I adapt those practices into this book? Um, you know, how do other writers use dialogue? How do other writers use pacing and foreshadowing? Because there's no reason you can't use all the devices you use in fiction, in nonfiction. And my goal here, you know, my goal in writing memoir is not to make the world understand me better. The world doesn't need to understand me better. My goal in writing memoir is to use the true ingredients of my life to deliver a good story. So just like a novelist is trying to deliver a, a satisfying storytelling experience, I'm doing that same thing. So I, I so appreciate that you said that. I have to ask this question. You're probably not going to appreciate this question, but not all my questions can be as appreciated as others. Uh, earlier this week, I had the English, I guess, feminist writer, uh, Marianne Seacart on the show. She has a new book out, The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and, and What We Can Do About It. It was an interesting um, discussion. She argues it's in everyone's interest, even men, to take women more seriously. One of the things she talked about was how women tend, uh, sorry, how men tend to read books by other men and women are much, much more generous, shall we say, much more open-minded in the kinds of books they read. Again, I don't want to pigeonhole you, but I'm guessing, and kill me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing that more women read you than men. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, I have no idea. I have no idea of reading statistics, but I can tell you, um, on Instagram, which is a social media platform that I use, one uh, there's a button that says insights, and I never knew it was there. And I hit it the other day by accident. And all of a sudden, I got all these grids and graphs that apparently were telling me about my Instagram following. And the little pie chart that showed women versus men was almost all women. So there's a statistic I can give you. And I don't know why that is. I wish I wish men did read more widely by women writers, but I don't know. Well, hopefully we've got some men listening, even if they're not going to buy the book, Mary, Laura. What, what could they learn, men, particularly as men, from, from reading this new book? Oh, um, gosh. Bomb Shelter. I, I, think, 
I think what any of us learned from reading anything, just how to make sense of the human experience. And there's so much about the human experience that is common between men and women. I mean, there, there's a good bit that's uncommon too, especially in America. But um, I think there's a lot in this book that has nothing to do with just being female. It has to do with being a person who loves other people. And hopefully there are a lot of men out there who are people who love other people. What about this issue of um, uh, generosity? Um, you you did this wonderful in- interview with uh, Kazuo Ishiguro. This is actually the first time I was familiar with your work uh, in the Washington Post uh, in, about his new book, Clara and the Sun. Um, there's not a lot of technology in your book, but there's a lot of humanity. Uh, Ishiguro manages to combine them both. Uh, were you tempted to put technology into the book, Bomb Shelter? No, there's, you know, at some point I might write about the importance of technology in my life. It just didn't really enter into this particular story, but I did. Oh gosh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I loved doing that interview. He is. Yeah, he, it was he wrote a wonderful my, interview. Yeah, he, he wrote my favorite book of all time, which is Never Let Me Go. And never, we ta- actually talked about it in the interview. Never let me go. And bomb shelter share a, a a big theme, which is that heartbreaking question of why can't love be enough to save somebody? Why can't loving someone be enough to earn them a reprieve? So it was such a thrill to talk to him. Uh, you um, you wrote a, another wonderful essay in the New York Times uh, in 2020 about uh, accidents and mm-hmm. forgiveness and, and being happy. Machines can't learn that. That's peculiarly human. And that's been one of the interesting things about your work and indeed Ishikura's work, this attempt to, the attempt to write, to explain, to muse on the uniquely human. Is that one of the things that um, you were trying to explain in Bomb Shelter, the the role of luck? Oh, yes, absolutely. And what's what's interesting about that essay that you just mentioned um, is I wrote it about this experience where my, my daughter and I went on a walk and we found, um, she found a turtle who had been run over by a truck. And we go to the top of the driveway to investigate and see if it is Frank, the turtle that we know and love. Mm. And, um, and I was worried it was when I was reading actually. So, so was I in the moment, let me tell you. But um, what's not in that essay in the New York Times is in the expanded version in this book. At the time that I published that, I was not yet speaking publicly at all about what was going on in our family and what my son had been through and how we were all sort of changed by that, changed by this up close look at, you know, not to be overly dramatic about it, but kind of the line between life and death. When you see someone having a seizure and they are unconscious, it is a really eerie moment because they're not there. They're not with you. They're they're physically there, but they're not there. And it it gives you a glimpse into into, you know, how fine that line is between life and death. And we were going through all of that at the time that that happened with that particular turtle. Um, But you won't find that in the New York Times essay. You will find it in the book. There's an expanded version of that story. Uh, You also uh, go to the other extreme. You don't just write about 
parenting, but you write about being a child of a parent. Um, uh, you, um, uh, you, uh, you ask, uh, and this, this is from the book. Uh, um, it's um, entitled The Most Haunting Truth of Parenthood. Uh, I'm reading you here. Do we ever really understand our parents? Certainly not when we're children. If we're lucky, we begin to understand them later. I wonder if you think that we can only really, is, is it one of the, the greatest benefits of being a parent, of being able to make more sense of our parents? Oh, absolutely. It, I, I, can't even, I cannot count the number of times I have thought, oh, now I get it. Like the, the number of apologies I owe my parents for ways I behaved as a child and as a teenager, and honestly, as a young adult, when I just didn't get what they were going through. I mean, that just washes over me in waves with every passing year. And I don't know that necessarily you have to become a parent to understand your parents better. I think you just have to become an adult. You have to become someone who is walking around in this world we live in, carrying all this responsibility that we carry, making the kind of decisions we have to make. Then you can look back and realize your parents were the adults when you were a little helpless kid and they were making the decisions on your behalf. And that's just such a heavy responsibility. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Oh, they're lovely. That was a, we were just looking at a picture of them when they were young, holding little baby me at, at Christmas time. That's my dad and my mom in the mid seventies. Uh, my dad is a doctor. He's um, sort of a mad scientist type personality. He's very, very bright and, um, he, you know, when he can't find the tools that he needs in the operating room, he invents them and patents them. So he's, he's that kind of scientific thinker and innovator. And my mother is, um, my mother is, I think, where I inherited my sense of humor from and my way with words. She has a way of observing people and situations and describing them in really colorful, really funny language. And I, I think I absorbed that growing up and it, it maybe influenced me as a writer and as a person. Do you think they are able to make more sense of you through your books? Have they thanked you for that? <laughs> they have not thanked me for that. I think I've done more thanking of them. Like, thank you for putting up with a memoirist for a child. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever really wants a memoirist for a child. I have a brother who is a doctor. Everyone in my family but me, are they're all doctors. And so I have one brother who went into the family business. Um, they... I think they're sort of bemused by my writing. They know me pretty well as a as a human being. So there's I don't think there's much that comes along that surprises them, but every now and then they get a little look into, oh, I didn't didn't realize you actually felt that way. You you call yourself a memoirist. At what point do you know when to stop about when to stop remembering? Are you, do you have to sort of censor yourself? We've done a number of shows about covid and sex and dating we did one with laura kipnis and then yesterday actually i did a show with another washington post writer christine ember on rethinking sex new very sort of revealing troubling elements of new sexual practices amongst younger people in america do you have to force yourself not to write about stuff i mean you're no. not you're you're very personal but you're not enormously intimate i guess is if I write very personally about emotional things, but I'm very private about a lot of other stuff. Um, I, you're never going to get an essay from me about my sex life. I'm just not interested in in sharing that with the world. That is private. That's for me. Um, 
And I actually, I had a conversation once with David Sedaris. This has been years ago, but I asked him a similar question. I said, where is the line? Like, how do you know what you will share and what you won't share? And and he very quickly answered the question. He was like, the line is here. And he, he named a couple of things. Like he's not interested in telling other people's stories, which I agree with. I'm only interested in telling my story. And he said, and I don't write about sex. And I, I remember just kind of nodding and being like, okay, wow, I have sort of the same boundaries. Yeah. But you do write about animals and you write about many other things, being a mother, um, you write about being a daughter, uh, and it's a wonderful uh, new book, um, Mary Laura, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives. I think it's going to make your fans very happy and going to make you many new fans, including, I hope, a few men, uh, including myself. So congratulations on all that. Uh, in addition to this new book, which is out this week, uh, Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives, what else should people be reading in mid-April 2022? Oh, in mid-April. Let's see. I've got, I've, I'm a little off on my calendar. What I've been, I've been reading things that come out just ever so slightly later. I just finished um, Emma Straub's new one that comes out in May, this time tomorrow. And I loved it. It has a lot, to, it actually has a lot in common with Bomb Shelter, sort of thematically thinking about wishing we could save the people we love. Um, I just got, I just opened my mail because I'm, I'm home in my house for a minute, just a little break from my book tour. And I just opened up a copy of Janelle Brown's new book, I'll Be You, which I think comes out any minute, maybe even next week. And I cannot wait to read that. I'm going to take that on a plane with me. And finally, Marianne. Well, not Marianne, Mary Laura Philpot, author of Bum Shelter. Highly personal, but not intimate, a memoir of your life and your family life out in, uh, in, in mid uh, April 2022, Mary, Mary Laura. Who, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? Uh, in my house, it is our beagle, Eleanor Roosevelt. She is the smallest member of the family and the bossiest, and whatever she says goes. <laughs> <laughs> 